You are listening to Hear Her Sports, a podcast for active, adventurous women who love hearing stories from other active and adventurous women. I am your host, Elizabeth Emery. In every episode, I introduce a female athlete or woman in sport through a conversation about who they are and the terrific work they're doing. This week, I speak to Anouk Patti, the chief of sport at U.S. Ski and Snowboard. She joined U.S. Ski and Snowboard last April, so we talk about the job, changes in the organization, increasing diversity of athletes, coaches, and tech, operational efficiency, joys of working with women, having cancer as an athlete, and being an older athlete. Anouk and I talk quite a bit about different kinds of diversity. It's certainly clear in our conversation what an impact diversity in leadership can have. Anouk is a woman and is gay, and already in her relatively short time at the top level of U.S. ski and snowboard, she has had positive impact on female and gay athletes and coaches. Since I launched Hear Her Sports, a recurring comment from guests and also from things I read while preparing to talk to guests has been how long change takes. You know, the Titanic takes a long time to turn. Sure, you know, I totally get that. The time needed for some changes is long. However, let's think about what can be done today to cause real change. Sometimes it is easy and simple things, like we heard in episode 117, with cyclocross champion Helen Wyman. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, sometimes, oftentimes, change does require real investment, and it's important that money is spent today on expanding access to opportunities for big change in the future. Anouk actually comments on some Silicon Valley excuses along these lines, so keep an ear out for that. In an upcoming episode, I talk to a woman who is investing in increasing BIPOC opportunities in sport for girls and boys, so stay tuned for that also. But now, let's meet Anouk and get started. Anouk Petit has a long and distinguished career at several blue-chip corporations. She was head of strategic partnerships at HP, focused on 3D scanning and 3D printing partnerships, particularly in the footwear and sports categories. Prior to that, she led HP's partnership in the gaming space. Anouk spent time in Intuit, where she was the GM of Quicken and QuickBooks for the Mac business. Her foundational professional experience was developed at both Bain & Company in San Francisco and J.P. Morgan in New York City and Melbourne, Australia. Anouk is on the board of Park City-based Powder, the parent company of Woodward, Copper Mountain, and Killington Resort, and previously sat on the board of Green Mountain Valley School. Anouk is a longtime athlete. She competed on the U.S. Alpine ski team in the 1980s and raced for Dartmouth College, where she was a three-time All-American and won the NCAA Skiing Championships in 1988. She earned an MBA from Harvard Business School, an Executive Education Certificate in Leadership and Innovation from Stanford Business School, and a BA in Economics from Dartmouth College. Anouk continues to love the outdoors, aims to get out every day to ski, play golf, mountain bike, or trail run. Well, hello, Anouk. This is super fun to have you here. I have a ton of things I want to talk about, but, you know, I want to start with, you know, like really basic stuff. What exactly does your job as chief of sport entail? You know, what are you focused on? You just started in April. So how have you been spending your time since then? Yeah, I, um, my kids laugh because they asked me, mom, did you make up that title or did they actually give it to you? Because I kind of agree with them. I think it's like the coolest title I could possibly have. And no, I did not make it up. They actually did give it to me. But as chief of sport, I'm a little bit like 
an athletic director in a college where I'm responsible for all of the athletics or the sports, as we refer to it, within U.S. Ski and Snowboard, which means the things I don't do are marketing, fundraising, those kinds of things. And so on the sports side, I'm responsible for everything from the top-level elite Olympic um, national teams for the sports of alpine skiing, cross-country, snowboard, free ski, freestyle, which is moguls and aerials, and then ski jumping and Nordic combined. So both the elite level, but then also we are what's called an NGB, which is a national governing body under USOPC. And so as the NGB, we're also responsible for grassroots development uh, across the country. And so there we work with the clubs and the different, there are a lot of academies out there now and programs that are trying to develop the kind of the next generation, not only of athletes, but coaches as well. So we have development programs in place where kind of we've defined the pipeline for the athletes, but then also we do all the sport education and training for coaches as well. And also tech, like wax people and all that. Um, you know, it's interesting. We, it's an area where we, we need to focus on a little bit more. Um, the tech side, so for sure at the elite level, we do. We haven't done as much around training and education on the tech side at the grassroots. But, you know, as you probably are aware, when you look at an athlete and helping them to achieve their full potential, the wax tech, particularly like in, well, in some sports more than other, but for example, cross country and Alpine, it's, it's massively important. And so that's an area where traditionally as an organization, we haven't played as much, but it's one of our things that we've got to focus on going forward. Um, Sorry, I interrupted you. So keep no, going. that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's, so it's, it's uh, all the sports top to bottom. And then also what we call our high performance department, which is uh, all of the strength and conditioning and um, sports medicine, sports psych, and sports science for for our elite teams, for sure. And mostly it's focused on the elite teams, but also kind of establishing benchmarks for the clubs across the country. Like we have something called Skills Quest, which you know kind of sets the benchmark for young athletes, how many box jumps, sit-ups, push-ups they should be able to do at, at different ages. So, oh, wow. So, yeah. So we put all that out there and it's a hundred and we have 176 named athletes to our team, which would be the elite team. Uh, we've got 38,000 members that are members across our different programs. And then I have a staff of about a hundred people in terms of coaching and high performance and all that. So you ask kind of, how's it been since I started and where have I been spending my time? I, I will say, first of all, I'm just so honored to be here. Like I, I feel really lucky at this point in my career to be able to, to take everything that I've learned, but do it in a space that I'm passionate about. And I don't think everyone realistically is as lucky and fortunate to get to a place where I feel like I've gotten if you told me I'd be here 30 years ago, I would just la have laughed because I never really thought I'd, I, I was on the Alpine team a long time ago. I didn't really think I would come back and certainly not in this capacity, but I think I'm much better suited to being on this side of the table than I was as an athlete, but it certainly gave me perspective. So, 
yeah, it's been great. And in terms of where I've been focused, so a couple areas. First and foremost has been really making sure on the staffing side that we have the right people and the right seats on the bus. And so since I started on the sports side of the 100 people that I said, I we've changed about 30% of that staff, uh, which is quite a lot. It's It's not unnormal or unnatural to have a lot of change after an Olympic season and you sort of make a lot of changes for the next quad. But we we probably changed a little bit more than that, just trying to make sure that we have the right leadership in place and we have the right coaches. And I, and I will say, I think we have really, really great people in the organization now. Each of our respective sports is led by a sport director who reports to me, and we've changed four of the five sport directors. So really making some some big changes on the kind of staffing side, which I feel really good about. The other area that I've spent a lot of time on is really developing relationships with the athletes and connecting with them and getting their feedback. Because it's interesting to me, like, you know, in sports, the thing that makes athletes so good is that they're so capable of taking feedback, acting on it and moving to the next level. But organizationally, we haven't been as good at that. And so really going out and getting kind of the athletes feedback and voice and people out in the community as well as to like, how can we be better and then acting on it. But I think also just creating a safe place where athletes feel like they can come to me and talk and voice their, their frustrations, their feelings, their whatever. And that, and that, you know, on 176 athletes, that has been extremely (laughs) time consuming, but really, I think, productive organizationally. And then for me personally, very rewarding. So that's kind of the second big area focused on. And then the third area that I've spent a lot of time focused on is just, I guess, operational efficiency and trying to up-level our organization in terms of professionalism. You know, I, I spent 30 years at a lot of blue chip companies from JP Morgan, Bain, HP, And so in those roles at those companies, like there's just a a way in which you do things, you communicate, you share information and kind of just trying to bring that in to this organization to try to help us be, I mean, people work around the clock and they're so focused and committed, but just helping people uh, make sure that the things they're focused on are the right things and the way in which we communicate is a little bit more seamless and those kinds of things. So those, those are really the, the three areas that I think I've really spent the most of my time in the last six, seven months. Uh, I'm hesitating because I have so many questions like already listed, but I, I do want to ask about this staffing because I did notice while I was preparing that there had been a lot of change. And so when you were making these changes and you said 30%, which I agree is is a large number, even if it is you know, like post-Olympics, what were you aiming to achieve with those changes? Like, did you have a big picture that you were trying to get the organization to work towards and so you needed to make those changes? Yeah, yeah. So organizationally, I think we we have three objectives or goals that we're seeking. One is athletic performance and results. The second is 
grow the visibility of our sports. And the third is financial results as well, which is both increase revenue and then reduce costs. And so while we all focus on all three of those, my obviously main focus is on athletic performance and results. And so when we looked at our staff on the sports side, it felt a little in certain places complacent. And um, it was just kind of doing the same thing the same way over and over. And so we wanted to ignite a little bit of fire around like, hey, like we we do want to win and we want to be the best in the world. And we want to create a program that is competitive, not just today, but in the future. And we have all these incredibly talented athletes that are actually, when I went and spoke to them, asking us for more. They're asking coaches to give them more. They're asking us as a as an organization to push them harder. And so making sure that we had leaders in place who bought into that, who would say, you know, every second that you're on the snow, you got to be thinking about how you're using it so that you're optimizing your time or looking at the what we call the center of excellence, which is our facility here in Park City. I mean, we have a world-class high performance department. And so ensuring that, you know, we had leaders who were bought into everything that the high performance department was doing and would really push our athletes in the off season to come and, and get tested and abide by the training programs we were putting in place for them and push themselves physically so that when they are on the snow, they can A, avoid injury, but also B, perform to their best ability throughout the entire season. So, so it was like, we knew, okay, here's where we want to go organizationally. And we just felt like in some of the positions well, some of them we we chose <laughs> that we needed some change. Others, I think, you know, we we had some who just had been with the program for a long time, felt like they wanted to retire and do something differently anyway. So, you know, we started with, well, what are we solving for? And then do we have the right people on the bus to get us there? I like that you talk about the bus. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so some of those people on the bus or many people on the bus at the high level are women, I understand. Was that part of your doing? Yeah, Like we can mention, I mean, the CEO, certainly Sophie Goldschmidt, you also have the chief revenues officer, Trisha Worthington, chief financial officer, Brooke McAfee, and the high performance department is run by Jillian Bauer. Yeah, yeah. Jillian is, um, by when I look at it, probably the only woman running the high performance department in in an elite sport, which is really impressive. And the head of sports medicine is Jaron who ha- is also obviously a woman and has done tremendous amount when our, the unfortunate fact about these sports is that we have injuries all the time. Jaron and, and her team run the whole effort to get athletes back healthy on snow. So Jaron Santelli also is, is a woman in leadership. I can't take credit for any of those because, you know, Sophie was brought in, Sophie brought me in, Jillian was promoted just before, but I do give credit to you know, our board and Kip Nelson is our chair and they realized, you know, it's time. And there are certain things that I think they understood women could bring to the table and, and approach things a little bit differently. And my experience, I mean, it's so great. I've spent 30 years in a lot of different companies and never had like never been surrounded by women. Like I've always had to sort of like be the one woman in the room and kind of represent. And now 
like we don't have that. It, and and there are still things that we need to do. Like we need more women coaches. We need more women in key roles with th- kind of throughout the organization. But at least now we're focused on it. What's it been like changing from a sort of a male dominated business where you're the token and now you have all these women around? We actually really get things done. <laughs> like <laughs> It's kind of mind boggling. We don't like, you know, go very open, very direct, like if there's something we agree with or disagree, we sort of just say it. We don't play games with each other. There's no ego wrapped up. There's nothing territorial. It's just like, we are a team. We're all committed to the same thing. And we all work towards the same goal. And we just, we do it together. And it's really nice. Really nice. I bet it's fun too. Yeah, it is. And and the the other thing that's really nice and different is that I have felt sometimes as a woman in the workplace and I was a single mom for you know a good chunk of that is that you you have to sort of decide like either you you talk about it in the, in the workplace or you kind of don't. And I think what ends up happening is women go one way or the other and then men inevitably you know, they kind of like try to let you like, oh, okay, yeah, I understand you need to go to your kids lacrosse or volleyball game. And, and they try to be supportive of it, but sometimes it just doesn't really feel like they totally are. Whereas now with our group of women and, you know, most of us are moms as well. It's like, oh, I have a sick kid. Okay. Talk to you tomorrow. (laughs) Like it's, it's just, there's no like hang up about it. It's just so easy. And so a lot of that energy that a lot of women have to like expend in the workplace, having to like, you know, create this situation or place for themselves where they feel safe. We don't have to do that. Like we don't have to expend any energy on that, which is refreshing. Yeah, it's awesome. And, you know, since we're sort of talking about diversity, male, female, gender diversity, which obviously is a great interest of mine. Let's also talk about other kinds of diversity. And I know you've spoken out about sort of the expanding or the opening up of the ability of athletes to say that they're gay. And I also want to talk about that and would be interested what you're doing to increase diversity. You mentioned women coaches and I mentioned women tech people. And also in racial diversity, what are you doing about that? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I was listening to some of the arguments on the Supreme Court case right now around Harvard and affirmative action. And one of the things that I I do think was interesting was they were saying that uh, there's a lot of different types of diversity. And um, we tend to think a lot about kind of racial diversity right now. But there's socioeconomic diversity, there's sexual orientation diversity, there's cultural diversity, there's a lot of different types of diversity. And so you have to kind of look at it, I think, in sort of a multidimensional way, and then try to approach it in different ways. I don't think there's like a one approach fits all when it when it comes to trying to solve for diversity. So in terms of women, it is a big focus area of mine to bring more female coaches into not only our coaching staff, but also across the grassroots. And the thing that's difficult about women is that usually they're coaching when they're a little bit younger. And then there's just the reality of the fact that 
there's so much travel that is involved that if they want to have children or they have young children, it's really difficult. And so we're trying to find ways, A, to identify the top women, and we're working with the Women's Coaching Alliance now to identify the top women coaches, but also find ways where, you know, maybe they don't have to come with us on the road for the entire season, but they come on a trip here and there, or they engage in camps, things like that. Because I I do feel like having women coaches is really important for the athletes, particularly the women athletes, because then they feel they have like someone that they can trust and be comfortable with. A lot of our PTs and ATs are women, and they get really close with those women on, on the road, but also for the men. I mean, it's just good for the men to like not be you know, 24 hours a day, 365 a year, just with men. Like they, they kind of need to be exposed to women <laughs> a bit more. So I think all of our sports were taking a concerted effort of like, how do we get more women in? And then when we have them in, what are we doing to really support them and help them? And again, I think we're we're going to announce some things coming up in Killington at the at the event there around women and different initiatives that we're doing to to bring more in. And then in terms of like, you know, racial diversity for us, we've partnered with several organizations out there that are helping us to make these sports a little bit more accessible, helping us to grow awareness, helping us to understand a little bit more as well. Things like, and, and actually it goes with all types of diversity, but language, the language that we use as an organization is really important to demonstrate inclusivity. So been doing, you know, a fair amount that we work with um, National Brotherhood of Skiers, who's helping us. And I'm working with them to see like what types of things, specific things could we do to kind of leverage that partnership a little bit more. And some of those athletes, I mean, they have a pipeline of athletes, which I love. And so how can we help that pipeline a little bit more? Well, and I should say, obviously, in hiring, we're really taking a focused look on when we're interviewing candidates, are we looking broadly at different candidates that could bring some diversity into key roles? And then in terms of like, um, I don't know, sexual orientation, diversity and gender identity and all that, I think that's an area where I have pushed and helped a lot. And it has been actually really fascinating for me to realize like one person in leadership can actually make tremendous difference. And I think that is partly why when you put people in leadership who are thoughtful and caring about this, you can move the whole organization. And so, I I mean, I'm openly gay and I've been kind of carrying the flag for a little bit, a little while. And just doing little things like when it was the first day of Pride Month, I sent out an email to the whole organization, giving a little history of like what Pride Month is, because most people don't even know and talking a little bit about, you know, Stonewall and the courage and bravery that was shown there, but also the courage and bravery that our athletes show. Like these are traits that we embody as an organization. And I was so surprised how many people responded to me and they were like, oh, this is so great. We've never had anyone in leadership send out a note like this. And I was like, wow. And I I was really happy yesterday. We had the first openly, as of yesterday, first actively competing athlete come out yesterday in Breezy Johnson. It, it was like, a, it was, for me personally, it was a really huge day. Like I was just so happy all day long. And I actually had several people reach out and, you know, kind of 
say thanks for for creating a space where an athlete could do that. And, and you know, Breezy's been on this team for a little while. She's an extraordinary person, an extraordinary athlete, extremely private. And, you know, just ahead of the season, she just put it out there on Instagram. The love and support that she got in social media was really, really fantastic. And so I think for me, as I said, like as a leader, it's been really cool to see like you you really can make a huge difference just as one person in trying to change the culture and making it more inclusive. I'm glad you mentioned all that because I would love to see some people of color in the high levels of of the organization. And I'm just not seeing that. And of course, there are you know, very few athletes also. Yeah. Yep. I mean, so there are two different things. On the athlete side, we are doing what we can to kind of develop that pipeline. And, and I do, I have to admit, I think we've just started that. But to get an athlete, any athlete, regardless of, you know, where they came from or what their skin color is or what their sexual orientation is, to get an athlete onto the elite national team takes years and years and years. So it's not something that we're going to be able to like suddenly next year, we're going to have athletes of color, BIPOC athletes on our lead team. It just, it takes a long time. And so we have to start earlier on in the pipeline to help bring these athletes in, nurture them, develop them, and then, you know, support them through that pipeline all the way up. So we have to start at the really kind of the younger ages. And then in terms of our staffing, there's a lot of different roles. I mean, there's coaching, there's on-hill coaching, there's administrative roles, there are leadership roles. We actually just hired Lily Tran, who's our head of HR, diversity, safe sport, all that. She herself is a diversity candidate. So it, it's been nice having her come in and just think about like, okay, how are we going to approach this? Because we are focused on it. And, you know, I mean, we we have quite a few applications out there. And so when we look to interview people, I mean, just the reality is when we look at the the general pool of people, candidates who have, who have applied, they're pretty much white, straight, uh, a lot of males. And so we have to actively go out and find candidates other places. And let's talk only about women at this point. You know, are there women coaches, for example, or tech people who are working at the lower levels, not at the elite levels, but they're just not being recognized? And is it just a matter of recognizing them and bring them up? Or is it a matter of going even further back and starting training coaches, women coaches and women tech people sort of earlier on even in their career? Both. Tech, I don't know a single woman tech person, I mean, out there. I would love to sort of create that, but I, I just, I don't know any. That is very male dominated. Yeah, very chauvinistic. And so that, that is an area we do need to get changed. But it's just, it's hard for us, even at the elite team, to even hire men. Like, it's just a role that is super important. But from the American side, in terms of like pool of candidates, we've had to hire mostly Europeans because mm. we haven't had that many. On the coaching side, it's sort of more by sport. And cross country has done a good job of developing women coaches at the grassroots. And then snowboard has a little bit as well. So we just hired from uh, Steamboat Maddie Shafrick, and she's the first national team snowboard halfpipe 
female coach. She's also openly gay. So I'm like exponentially excited that we have Maddie on board. But that, you know, that's like it's 2022 and it's the first time that that sport at the elite team has hired a woman. Right. Um, but they are starting and a lot of them are athletes who have retired and then are coaching. So so that is actually starting. But, you know, we only have two elite team halfpipe coaches. So it's not like there's a ton of it, it's not like you have a football team and you got 30 coaches like we only have two. And then we have one halfpipe development coach who's Danny Cass, who's a former athlete. So so it's not like we have a lot of openings to begin with, I should say. The Alpine team is where we have more coaches and and more roles to fill. We recently hired Forrest Peterson, who used to be on the team, skied at Dartmouth, and is coaching our women's development team. And she is fantastic. And she's one that, you know, we will definitely keep an eye on and nurture and kind of move her through the ranks. But she is beloved by those female athletes on that team. And she's doing an incredible job. So, So we have started to bring them in. On the grassroots side, on the Alpine, there are definitely, I mean, we got Forrest, she was coaching at Romark, and we brought her in. And so the local clubs and programs do have women coaches, for sure. The challenge is often when we post a role, those coaches who coach at clubs and academies are very well paid, and they don't always really want to leave. And the women are like, why would I leave my nice home in Vermont that I have it's great here. I mean, and it's not even women, it's men and women. It's not super easy for us to hire coaches because, you know, they are on the road all the time. Right. You have to do it because you love it and you want you want to be a part of the national team. But the fact is a lot of those programs pay better than we do. I mean, I asked you this question because I often say on the podcast, you know, like this problem of gender diversity, because that's usually what I'm talking about. This problem of gender diversity could be change tomorrow with somebody making the decision. And as you pointed out, and it's clear, you know, like this is a much bigger, more difficult problem because, you know, it takes a long time to develop an athlete. Let's just use the athletes as an example. But even, you know, developing a tech person or a coach person just takes years and years. So it's not one of those things that you can say, okay, tomorrow we're just going to hire a bunch of people. Yeah. I mean, I hate to like fall into the trap of saying, you know, well, like I, I know in Silicon Valley, they had this ridiculous excuse. Well, there there just aren't any good BIPOC software developers or there aren't any good women software developers, which is complete bullshit. But like, I, I do think that we have, uh, particularly on the athlete side, there's just, there is a reality a little bit of, there just aren't a lot of kind of BIPOC athletes right now knocking on the door of the team but that's okay. We get that. So we're going to go far earlier in the pipeline. And then the coaches side, like they are out there. Um, there are a lot of women coaches out there. It's just, it's a whole different lifestyle. And I, I fully understand. I mean, I know for me in my relationship, like I'm on the road a lot. It's not easy. <laughs> and it's not easy even to be a mom when you're on the road all the time like this. And my kids are 20 and 22. So yeah, it's just, it's a tough it's a tough kind of situation to try to pull a lot of women in, but without a doubt, we are, we're trying and we're trying to identify more women to bring in. I love that you are here listening to another terrific sporty woman tell her story. 
If you aren't already on the list, I encourage you to sign up for the Hear Her Sports newsletter at hearhersports.com. Many listeners are already signed up and really enjoy reading and finding even more by clicking the links. You will find special offers from sponsors, of course, with the links that take you exactly where you want to go. Mostly, the newsletter is where I write some thoughts on the latest guest and what we talked about in the episode. All the conversations stay with me, so in the newsletter, I'm able to relate those thoughts to a bigger picture of women's sports and to everything I've learned from the more than 100 women I've spoken to in the last five years, producing the podcast and other audio projects. Each individual story is important. Equally important is where the stories fit into the context and history of female athletes and women's sports. I'd love to have you join us. It comes out only every other week, so enough to be engaging, but not too much. Sign up at hearhersports.com. Women's Running Stories, where we explore the intersection between running and life. Because every woman who is committed to a running journey has a story to tell, and this is where you'll find those stories. I am host and producer Cherie Louise Turner. I'm a 53-year-old runner, and together with original music by musician and runner Cormac O'Regan, we bring these inspirational stories to life. Please join us to fuel your adventures. And now let's get back to Anouk Petit, Chief of Sport at U.S. Ski and Snowboard. Well, let's talk about the athletes and, you know, what is the road to be, you know, a good local racer and to get onto the A-team? So it depends on the sport, honestly. Like some sports do have a steeper learning curve. And so you can come in maybe when you're a little bit older and then quickly learn as long as you're a good athlete. Other sports like alpine, you know, you, you kind of need to have shown some pretty good talent by the time you're almost like 8, 9, 10. And then a lot of those athletes will join local clubs, programs, may go to a ski academy, and then they will participate in local and then regional competitions that we as the NGB kind of oversee, but they're really organized and hosted by that local region. And so there's a very step-up process where you stay, you stay local in your area. Like I grew up in Vermont, you stay competing in Vermont, then you compete in the Eastern region, then you move to the national level. And so there are milestones you have to keep hitting as an athlete to progress up. And then in terms of like making the national team, like we have very set criteria that we publish in terms of like world rank results at US nationals, results at NORAMs, which is the top level domestic events other than when we host a world cup. So there is that defined pathway and it it does take quite a bit of time, but it's, it's pretty laid out with milestones that they have to achieve kind of all the way through. You make it sound like if you're not good at eight, you like, you should like, <laughs> up your skates or something. <laughs> no, I, no, I, I mean, we have athletes, you know, Ted Ligeti that everyone says, well, he kind of peaked a little bit later. And we have some athletes who don't even really start until they I mean, we have, I think Ashley Caldwell, who just won gold in Beijing, I think she started aerials when she was like 15. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, it, it, again, it depends on the sport. And I, I will say the sports like snowboard and free ski, you can definitely come in later and develop really quickly, as long as you're like, a little bit fearless and willing to, you know, attempt tricks and all that, but you can 
you can progress quite quickly in those sports. I think Alpine is the one that takes the longest amount of time. I'm most familiar with cross-country skiing, and it seems like if you don't get on the A-team, then you don't end up going over to Europe to race, and then you're immediately behind the eight ball for the rest of your career. Like, is there a way to get sort of B-team over there? Well, yeah, no, I wouldn't say that's true. So the way cross-country works, it's kind of what we call a decentralized model. And the cross-country is actually the one sport where it's very much the opposite. So we actually have a committee. So we have our A, B, C, and D team. And we send all those athletes over and they all will compete at some point in different World Cups as long as they are skiing fast. But it's not to say you have to be on the A team. B team athletes compete in the World Cup all the time. But what we do on cross country is we have blocks where like, for example, January is a block, February might be a block. And we actually have a committee that includes a couple of our staff. So Chris Grover, who is the sport director, um, Matt Whitcomb, who's the head coach. And then we have other people who are out in the region who are coaching kind of at the you know more grassroots level. And that committee comes together a couple times a year and they actually go through, they have a set of criteria that they're using to help them choose, but they will then go through and choose which athletes across the country will go to that World Cup block. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a U.S. team athlete or not. In fact, oftentimes the athletes that are sent are not on the U.S. team. But it's a process that works extremely well in cross-country, I think partly because people who are involved in cross-country are just much more mature and easy to work with. We don't do that in our other sports. We have set World Cup criteria, but you know we, we haven't laid it out. So, But cross-country is definitely the one sport where you don't even have to be on the team and you can still go compete in a World Cup. Oh, I didn't know. So you've been in now on this job since April. What would you say have been the biggest challenges or surprises? I think one of the surprises for me is how much this organization and the people within this organization are doing. It's not been accurately or effectively communicated out to the grassroots. In the grassroots, there's like, there's so much passion and love of these sports. And there's more armchair quarterbacking going on than I think probably any sport. It seems like everyone I talk to seems to have an opinion on everything we should do, which I, like, I get, like, I'm a huge fan of the NFL, the NBA, and and people have an opinion on who should start, who shouldn't start, who should coach, who shouldn't. <laughs> but like, the sort of the heat in our sports with which people kind of give us their feedback on what we should do is it's sort of unmatched, I, I feel like. And so having, uh, that was sort of my view from the outside. And, and coming in, I'm like, wow, there's so much good stuff that we're doing. And we just need to like communicate out a little bit better. And so we've really been spending a lot of time. We actually had a call this morning with all of our partners and sponsors, communicating much more with athletes, talking to the regions, the development programs about like, here's what we're doing and providing a little bit more transparency. You know, I'm helping in the communications transparency, but the things that this organization has been doing, I think have been really, really good. And and the, the second part of that is I think the people we have are really, really committed. I mean, these are these are hard jobs. Like people work around the clock and they have to deal with, you know, a lot of travel, super early mornings, I mean, the weather is not sunny blue sky every day, believe me. 
but they're outside all day long. And, you know, and, and most of the athletes are pretty phenomenal, but sometimes they can get a little bit difficult. And then the injury rate is really tough. And it's hard when you have put so much into an athlete or an athlete puts so much in and then they blow their knee. And it's, there's a lot of emotion in these sports. I've just been like super surprised and, and appreciative of how committed and passionate everyone on this side is. So th- I think that's kind of been a surprise. I think the challenge is, you know, we, we definitely, like every organization, you have your long list of challenges. I think we've set ourselves up now. At least we know kind of where we need to focus and what we need to do. And each sport is a little bit different. And so now with our new leadership team, we have an idea of like, okay, here's the paradigm in which we're operating and here's where we're going to focus. And so now it's a matter of just really executing throughout the season. There's not a ton of change you can do when you got athletes all over the world. So now it's really just a matter of executing for the next five, six months. And then next summer, we need to make more changes we can. I love this idea of, you know, sort of a water cooler discussion of skiing. So do you have an example of, you know, what people are talking about? Yeah, I mean. And sort of the advice that they're giving you unsolicited? Yeah, I mean, I, um, you know, I have friends who live in Vermont and work in different programs. I've got friends here in Park City. And I mean, even I just ran into someone in the coffee shop the other day and they started telling me what Michaela, whether or not, you know, she should be racing speed this year. I just was like, what? <laughs> like, what, what, how do you feel like you have the knowledge and insight to even have an, like, you can have an opinion, but have insight on that, you know? And so those kinds of things, or um, talking to, you know, just some other people and they sort of have this idea of like the criteria and how we should structure our criteria, which is super data driven. Like it's not, there's nothing arbitrary about our criteria. So if you don't have that, that data, which is not, there's nothing secret about it. I'm happy to share it. People kind of making these sweeping comments about like, we don't support collegiate athletes is just categorically untrue. I mean, we've got 70% of our women's Alpine and, and it's always an Alpine that they bring this up, but cause our cross country team, other than one, Every single one of those athletes has gone to college or graduated from college. On the Alpine side, 70% of our women is in college or graduated. And I think it's 60% on the men's Alpine team. So this perception that like we don't support our athletes going to college is, again, it's just kind of bullshit. So like, again, communicating out like, okay, here's the facts, here are the facts. But it doesn't stop people from giving me their opinion. You keep talking about how difficult the life is. So the difficulty of life of the coach and also the athletes. I mean, is that just intrinsic to the sport or is there a way for the organization to sort of alleviate some of that? No, I think it's just the nature of the sport. I mean, part of it is most of the competitions happen in Europe. And so our athletes are going back and forth to Europe, you know, many, many times throughout the year. And they'll come back home for five days, take a break, go back to Europe. And, you know, a trip from Denver or San Francisco to Zurich, that is a long flight. It's one thing if you're flying out of Boston or New York, but a lot of our athletes are in the West. It's a long flight. But this, the reality is that our athletes have to fly there. The Europeans, the Swiss, the Austrians, they just drive home, 
when they have a break and it's, you know, it's easy for them. So that, that is one thing. And then just the nature of climate change happening is that like, if, as an example, this summer, the glaciers were closed. So rather than fly to Sasve or Zermatt, ski on those glaciers, like our teams are used to, they have to fly all the way to New Zealand. And the time change to New Zealand is pretty significant. The jet lag is tough. And so when they go to New Zealand, they go for a month. So they're there for a long time. You know, there's not much at the mountain in New Zealand. And then they'll come home for a week and then they'll go to Chile or two weeks. They'll go down to Chile. And same thing, Portillo, Chile is absolutely beautiful, but like there's nothing there. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of time on, on the world. We had a coach who went, our head women's coach, PK, he went to Sasve early in the summer in July, flew back to Miami for a few days, flew all the way from Miami to New Zealand for like two, three weeks, flew from New Zealand to Chile to train with the, the speed team, Chile back to Miami and then back to Europe. Like it's just the global travel is a lot and it's tough. And so, yeah, we do things that we try to make it easier. Like, you know, we, we try to get them they're not flying first class, but at this point, they'll have so many miles that they can fly, what is it, you know, and United, between first class and the back of the bus, whatever that's right, section. Right, right. And we have, in the past, we've rented apartments in Innsbruck, and um, a lot of our athletes have just stayed there. The men's Alpine team, they have a race, like they have to fly basically Christmas Day back to Europe for more races. So now, and the women too, and so now they're just deciding you know what, let's just stay in Europe. Well, you know, not being home for Christmas is not easy. So, so yeah, I mean, we try to do things we can, but the reality is it's just the nature of the sports. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was surprised to hear that athletes just don't go over there and stay forever, you know, like basically stay for the season. That, like the cross-country team does. They stay, quite a few of our athletes do go over and stay. And then the benefit is they've learned how to speak new languages and things like that. But then, you know, they need to come back here because the training is here or the snow right here is better. There's the, there's more snow and copper there right now than anywhere else. So we've got athletes that are all there. Hmm. Interesting. Well, let's move on from all of that and talk about your own physical activity. Again, prepping for this interview, I heard that you are active every day. Is that, <laughs> is that true? Tell me what you're doing. Uh, I try to be as my family knows if I don't get a run in most days, they just don't really want to be around me. So <laughs> I get uh, that. yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, yeah, I run a lot because it's just easy moving to Park City and spending the summer here. The mountain biking is just phenomenal. It's so good. Uh, I play a lot of golf. I really love golf. And then, yeah, I play tennis. Tennis has become a little tough on my body. So I, I have to admit, I think I play a bit more pickleball than I have tennis, but uh and then when I lived in California, I had started surfing quite a bit down in Santa Cruz, which is just a great sport. I love it. So, yeah, if I had my, my way, I would just be outside playing sports all day long. How are you feeling about being an older athlete? And I assume, you know, sort of the drive and the interest in sports hasn't changed. But, you know, we're not as we're not as young as we were. Yeah. I mean, I've, I broke both my legs. I've had my fair share of bang ups, um, as every athlete has. And so I walk a little funny. There's no doubt about that. You can see my walk a mile away. I always have people say to me, Oh, I recognize your walk anywhere. 
But I, I feel like I have been lucky. Like as I had a chiropractor told me one time, he's like, if you can run every day, just keep going because your body's obviously used to it. So I, I do feel a little bit lucky in that respect. One thing though that I did have, so I had, uh, I went through breast cancer about three years ago and that in like Keegan went through it, um, kind of right before me and Keegan Randall and I have spoken about it. Um, and since, you know, there's been other athletes, but something like that is, is tough for a former athlete because you do feel like your body is a little bit invincible and like you get, okay, like I can't go ski the way I used to ski or I can't quite play tennis the way I used to like physically, but you, that is very, it's visible to, to me. Like I, I get it. Like, okay, my knee hurts. Therefore playing tennis is hard the way I used to. But like when you have to go through breast cancer, it's so random and it's hard to get your head around. And it's like, well, I didn't do anything to get it. So here I thought like you have a certain, you know, frame of mind as to how your body is and where it's progressing. And then something like that happens. You're like, well, wait, that's not, that doesn't fit in. Like where, where did I go wrong to make that happen? Or, you know, that's sort of why me, but you sort of feel like you're so fit and then something like that happens. You're like, what the hell? So I think that those kinds of things and the reality is more and more women, uh, for whatever reason, do have to struggle with that. So I think that's an area where being a former athlete is a little tough. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because, you know, being an athlete, there is definitely like, if I do this, then that, you know, like this, you know, success happens because you do the work. And as you mentioned, the cancer is random. Yeah. Yeah. And you just, you can't, it's just hard to understand. Like randomness, like, you know, oh, I had a random crash or I caught an edge and, you, you know, I went down. But something like cancer is just, um, it's just, is yeah, it's hard to get your head around and understand it. But, you know, and the, the good thing of it is as an athlete, the trainer or whatever says, okay, you have to go in every day, you got to do this and stay on this program and, you know, you'll come out of it. Like, okay, I know what I need to do put my head down and go do it. And so you, you kind of just plow through it like that. <laughs> Hopefully. Do you have the same relationship to, or do you get the same thing now from working out or training or whatever you call it, playing outside that you did when you were younger? Yeah. I mean, I, I love every sports. I'm more of a ball racket, um, kind of person. And the good thing is like now it's not as like my bar is lower, I guess is the easiest way to say, but like, I love sports where I learn. So like golf is great or surfing is great. Cause like, A, I'm not dependent. I mean, I love team sports, but I also do really like individual sports. Like it's just me out there and like I'm learning and I'm progressing or I'm getting my ass kicked because of whatever. And so those sports I think are great. And I think that's why a lot of our athletes actually surf and play golf is because there's just this endless progression that you have to go through. Like you're never there, you know, like, and, and the learning curve in something like skiing or snowboarding for all our athletes is so steep. That learning experience is so fine tuned, but like you throw most of us on a board or on the golf course, it's like, wow, there's so much I can learn here. And that's fun because that's what makes a great athlete is like, you really like to learn. Right. Well, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Great to talk yeah. to you. It's been my pleasure. I, I really enjoyed it. And I think it's great. I think that the topics you're covering are 
really important and really interesting. So thanks for asking. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. It's been such a pleasure, such a pleasure to talk to Anouk Patti. And a special thank you to all our Patreon and Buy Me a Coffee supporters for their continued support back in the show. I really appreciate their support and am grateful to all of you for listening and telling others about the show. Hear Her Sports is a listener-supported show, and we couldn't do it without you. If you are not a supporter, enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to give back, go to patreon.com slash hearher or to the easy-to-use buymeacoffee.com slash hearher. Remember to visit the show notes page for links to all the things Anouk Petit mentioned in the show. As always, I absolutely love getting messages and notes and emails and any comments from listeners. So send me an email to elizabeth at hearhersports.com. Find us on all the socials at hearhersports. And if social media is not your thing, definitely be sure to sign up for the newsletter at hearhersports.com. It comes out every other week and includes some of my thoughts from the most recent episode and often how I see it connecting to the rest of the episodes and ongoing issues in women's sports. I look forward to seeing you next time. Bye-bye. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see... They've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Kobe Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo jo, Phil Hughes. Justin Fashionew. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star. A new series from Crowd Network. <laughs>